Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never, ever charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. My guest today is the one and only Bob Clearmountain, who's a producer, engineer, mixer, and musician that defies the need for introduction, but I'm going to give you one anyways. Bob's got two Grammys, six nominations, and an innumerable amount of Billboard hits. He operates out of Mix This Studios in LA, and he's active to this day. It would probably be easier to list bands that he hasn't worked with, but in case you've been living under a rock, here's just some of them. Guns N' Roses, David Bowie, Brian Adams, The Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, Tina Turner, Bon Jovi, Nine Inch Nails, etc., etc., etc. Ladies and gentlemen, I present you Bob Clearmountain. Bob Clearmountain, welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I have a opening question for you, something that I've wondered about a lot because I've done about 270 of these now, and there's a common thread that I've noticed no matter what era most of the producers who come on come from, the common bond tends to be that they started by playing music, and for some reason, it didn't grab them enough, and not the way that audio did, for whatever reason. So, And I know that you started as a musician. What was it that made you want to go down the uh, production path rather than the musician path? Yeah, well, I was, I did start as a musician. I was a bass player. But the biggest problem was that I kind of sucked <laughs> as a bass player. <laughs> I was in a bunch of bands as a teenager. And the last band that I was in, I thought, oh, well, th this band really has a shot at doing something. And then it split up because of personality differences in the band. And I just thought, okay, I've had it with the, trying to keep a bunch of crazy musicians together. I was always really interested in the recording side. Like I was the guy with the tape recorder that would record the gigs and the rehearsals. So I was already well in, into that, that end of it. And I was intrigued by recording and, uh, I always wanted to see what the inside of a recording studio looked like 
And my last band was doing a demo at a studio called Media Sound. And I thought, well, I could just live in this place. I love this. And the other thing was that I have a bit of stage fright. I just didn't really like being on stage and, and performing in front of people. It just wasn't, I didn't feel comfortable doing that. You know, I like, I won't really was more interested in being sort of behind the scenes kind of person, you know. I think it's a certain personality type that's wired for the stage. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> What's actually interesting about doing these podcasts and the type of stuff I do with like the online education is that producers are generally not into being in the spotlight as opposed to the musicians. So I've actually found it one of the biggest challenges has been to be able to get people to talk because it's a pretty common thing for producers to kind of take the way Wizard of Oz role rather than the star role. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, I mean, there's a few that cross over that do both. I think it's more often that a musician who is also a, you know, more of an arranger and, and a, say, writer will tend to become a producer, you know what I mean, than the other way around. Like, usually, you know, start out as a producer and then become a musician. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't actually heard of that happening. Right. You said that you didn't like the drama of having to basically herd cats or a bunch of crazy <laughs> musicians. Isn't that part of the production process too, having to deal with the personalities of everybody involved? Well, you bring up a very good point there, and which is why I don't produce records. Okay, <laughs> like, all right then. <laughs> I did produce, I produced like 25 records back in the 80s. And I hated it. I mean, I finally realized, well, you know, why am I doing this? I don't like doing it. I, the only part that I really like was the rough mix at the end of the day. It was difficult for me to, you know, the, the psychology of dealing with musicians and trying to get them to do a certain thing was, it was just uncomfortable for me. And so, hence, I'm a mixer. And so that's exactly, you've just totally brought up that point. Well, I mean, you know the cliche about a producer having to be a parent and a psychiatrist and a coach and band leader and fifth member. And I mean, that's it's pretty true. So I think if you're not that kind of person, it, it might not be your bag, really. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I never had my own kids. I have stepkids, but that was just another thing. I never thought, I never wanted to be a father, really. Same here. Even though I actually, I love, I I love my stepkids. <laughs> yeah. You know, it turns out that I I really do love my stepchildren. Yeah, I'm just not that personality. You know, I'm more of a technical, you know, I like being alone and just give me some faders and some knobs <laughs> to twiddle. You know what I mean? That brings up a couple things because it's got my, my mind spinning because... I think from what I've seen, and obviously your experience is completely different than mine, that most mixers, well, yeah, you start as a producer, they start as producers, and then almost like that's the coveted spot. They work their way up to where they can be a mixer, but usually that takes quite a bit of time, and it's the hardest part of the whole process, in my opinion, as far as technical skills go. How did you figure out that that was your calling? So I started out as an engineer, really, as a recording engineer, and then worked my way up to being a producer, which is what all my engineer friends said, this is what you're supposed to do. And then after that, I realized the only part I liked about it was the, the mixing part. And that's what it was, just that every time I do a mix, I enjoyed it. And then I, in, in the 80s, it was the first time people were seeking me out just for mixing. You know, and I was producing. I said, well, this is interesting. Why, 
why are people just asking me to mix records besides producing? And I said, well, that that works out just fine because that's my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> and so that that's kind of how that, that worked, you know. Did you have any sort of mentor that helped you? Or is this something that you figured out by doing, basically? I mostly figured it out. I mean, I should say, at the studio where I started, Media Sound, there were some guys there that that I observed. I mean, it was like an apprenticeship back then. I was an assistant engineer. There was Tony Bon Jovi, who is, of course, John Bon Jovi's cousin. And um, he he was an engineer and very unorthodox style. But he was a very good mixer, and he knew about how to make a how to mix a hit record. And I used to just watch him. I mean, he never told me anything very much. I don't think there was Michael Delug, who was really responsible for hiring me there at Media Sound, and so he would kind of clue me in on a few things. There's another guy named Jeffrey Lesser, who I credit a lot because we became really good friends. He was a really great engineer and a producer, and sort of took me under his wing a little bit on a lot of the sessions. I mean, I was a staff assistant, so they could just request, oh, I like this guy, can you put him on my session? That kind of thing. And so, um, and I really liked him because he was always into experimenting with new gear and things like that. You know, he was, uh, instead of just being happy with normal way of doing things, he kind of pushed the envelope a little bit, which is what I, I enjoyed. But nobody really taught me, I think. Back at Media Sound, I mean, we called it a band, but really it was a studio workshop. It was We called ourselves the Bats. It was me and like three or four other assistants and engineers, and we'd come in on the weekends. Luckily, the studio was mostly busy during the week, and they let us use the studio at nights and on the weekends sometimes. And we would just record ourselves. I mean, I'm the worst songwriter in the world, and so <laughs> we <laughs> wrote terrible songs. I mean, the stuff we did was awful. But the thing was, it was great for us because we could do anything we want. We tried every mic on every instrument. And, we, and the studio had a lot of instruments because we did most of the music for Sesame Street there. And so they had like timpanis and xylophones oh, yeah. and glockenspiels and all this stuff, you know, besides a bunch of guitar amps and all kinds of stuff. And we would just try everything. We would use every instrument. And so we would learn and we could make mistakes we could erase stuff by accident or whatever and do crazy stuff and figure out what, what worked and what didn't. That's why we have a studio at, at Apogee now called the Apogee Studio. And, you know, I encourage the people at Apogee that are into recording because they design and build, use the equipment and sell it. I said, well, come in and use the studio once in a while, you know, and, mm -hmm. and get some experience because that's how I learned. I was very lucky that we were able to do that, you know. The era of the big studio in some ways is kind of over, but do you feel like maybe that environment is missing from a lot of uh, young producers upbringing, just the ability to have someone incredible to watch and toys to play with, basically? Absolutely. No, I, I really do. And, and it was nice. A lot of the guys nowadays, if they're lucky enough to hook up with a, a great producer or a great engineer... But it's usually just the one person that they're learning from. And so, so they get focused on a certain specific way of doing things and they don't realize that there might be other ways. I was so lucky because there were you know, several different engineers at that studio and they all did things differently. There was one guy that was just into doing jingles. He was very good at what he did. He was brilliant, actually. But he didn't really mind about what... He let me pick whatever mic I wanted. You know, he wasn't concerned about that part. And he would still make it work. 
Yeah, he would say, he would just trust me. I'd ask him, he goes, well, what, you know, figure it out yourself. What do you think? <laughs> you know? And that was fantastic for me because I, every session, even though I wasn't engineering, I could try different mics. <laughs> he must have really trusted you. Yeah, what an idiot. What was he even <laughs> thinking? <laughs> <laughs> so would it be kind of like during the week you'd be working with these incredible engineers kind of fly on the wall or doing what they needed and then on the weekends you'd get together with the other assistants and almost uh, try all those tricks out for yourself and whatever you could come up with. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then once I started, you know, they were great because they saw that I was taken to it really quickly. And they would give me like the COD sessions, you know, the, just the real cheap, the clients that couldn't afford much money. And so they, they put me on those sessions. And I just learned because I got to actually do sessions. I mean, she's the first session I ever did, first full recording basic track session was with Cool and the Gang because the engineer, Tony Bon Jovi, once again, didn't show up. I got to record, well, two hit songs, actually, Funky Stuff and Hollywood Swinging. How lucky was that? That's very lucky. But you know what? <laughs> I hear that story a lot that so many people's opportunities come from somebody else not showing up mm -hmm. or getting sick or something, something like that. They work at a certain place or in a certain environment kind of as an underling long enough, build trust long enough to where the main guy or, you know, the person originally hired, I don't know, his kid breaks a leg at soccer practice and he can't go to the session that day. Right. I guess their skills happen to have developed to a point to where they can take the session over and then end up impressing who's ever asked they save, basically. Yeah, right. No, it happens, happens a lot. A lot of very talented people are, get their start that way. And, you know, I hope that it doesn't stop happening. <laughs> I don't think it does, but I do think that you're right that one of the big differences now is that people will work under one person and just basically take on that person's one style. After cooling the gang, how did it progress from there? Well, I was still an assistant engineer, so they would put me on as an assistant. Sometimes they'd give me sessions of my own. And after about two or three years, I wasn't really assisting much anymore because I, I was starting to actually gain some of my own clients. And we were doing a lot of R&B records in those days. And I used to do some jingle sessions too. And, you know, went from there. And, and then when I finally gave notice, when Tony came along and said, oh, we're, I'm going to build a new studio, which ended up being the power station in New York. It was after about five years, I think, because I worked from, let's see, I was there 72 to 77. And in the summer of 77, I gave notice and they were really upset. And I had a couple of clients really angry at me because I was leaving and they didn't want to, for whatever reason, I don't know, they didn't want to change studios. <laughs> so that's, that's how that happened. I mean, I didn't do any probably real big records. I mean, Cool and the Gang was pretty big. There was a Sister Sledge thing. There was a few other things, Benny King. And then Power Station started and then I helped Tony design it. And then that became the sort of focal point of recording in New York or on the entire East Coast, I think, for a, a long time. It's still there, which is really nice. How many years was it between when you first went to the studio with uh, your own band and decided this is not for me, <laughs> the being in a band part, to opening Power Station? Five years, five and a half years. Okay, got it, yeah. It was 72 when the band split up. It was the winter of 72. I started working there at, in September 
of 72, I started, they hired me as a delivery boy, as a runner. Because I kept bugging them. I kept coming in and saying, look, you should hire me. You should hire me. So, yeah, okay, well, stop bugging us and come back in <laughs> September because some of the interns will be leaving and you can work here as a runner. Great. Fantastic. So I come in. I do one delivery or two deliveries, I think, in the morning. I come back and the receptionist goes, hey, are you that Clear Mountain kid? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, they're looking for you. You better get upstairs because they've been looking for you. I go, oh, great. You know. Now, I've been here an that hour. Sounds ominous. And now I'm going to get fired. I've done something terribly wrong, and I don't even know what it is. I go upstairs and say, where have you been? I said, oh, I went out in a delivery. Oh, we don't need delivery boys. We need an assistant engineer. So get down to Studio A. You're on the, you're on the session with Joe in Studio A. Okay. Yeah, fine. I walk in, and it's Duke Ellington session. Just like that. Yeah, my first day. <laughs> And so then it just went on from there. That doesn't sound scary at all. No, right, exactly. <laughs> on the topic of it being scary, I think a lot of people would have frozen in that scenario. How did it feel, you know, trying to get this gig for a while, thinking you're about to get fired, and then you walk in and you're on a Legends session? Well, first of all, I wasn't the main. There was already another assistant, so I didn't really have to know much you know i was just following him around and he was telling me what to do you know like plug in those headphones or you know move that ashtray or get coffee or something like that so it wasn't too nerve-wracking it was surprising the biggest shock to me was duke was overdubbing horns on a track they had previously recorded and he had a horn section there and he's screaming at the trumpet player and it's like cursing at him he's swearing at him up and down and uh turns out the trumpet player showed up drunk. Whoops. And what was shocking to me, 19-year-old white kid from Greenwich, Connecticut, was, wow, famous people swear? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, that's how naive I was. I was, I had no, no clue, basically. And they also show up to sessions drunk. Yeah, right. Who would do that? Who would think of that? That's like, <laughs> but, you know, I was so impressed because Duke, I don't know if the younger audience knows who that is, but he's... Certainly legendary jazz musician and arranger. Yeah, absolutely. That's a pretty high standard to be basically initiated into. Yeah. Did it kind of sustain at that level? Or, I mean, you were talking about some of the COD clients. So was Duke Ellington kind of, or people at his level, the norm that you were learning on? No, it was mostly people you wouldn't wouldn't have heard. Of. I mean, the biggest was probably Cool and the Gang at the time because they were actually making hit records. There was some other sort of minor R&B artists. There was um, a guy named, was a guy from the, a band called The Main Ingredient, Tony, somebody or other, and he became a producer. And they, The Main Ingredient had a, like two or three big R&B hits in the 70s, in the early 70s. He became one of my, one of my clients. Nothing that huge, you know. I was just working away, and there was a the only rock band I actually got to work with, with was a, a band called the Climax Blues Band, which was, had a little bit of fame in the, in the seventies. British band. That's about it. <laughs> I and mean, there was probably more that I can't remember. I mean, five years is a is a stretch. You know, something interesting that you just said is that when you put in your notice, decided you're going to go do the power station thing. A lot of the clients got mad and didn't go with you. It's surprising to hear that because I think nowadays bands will just follow who, you know, producer wherever, wherever they want to go. The people switch studios all the time. Why do you think it was that they were not into 
leaving that place? Yeah, that's a difficult question to answer because uh, it involves some of the personalities that were involved with the power station. I think that. Ah, okay. Well, it was it was one client in particular. It wasn't like a bunch of them, you know, but there was one or two. There were people involved in the power station that they didn't want to have anything to do with. It wasn't Tony? People like Tony. It was some somebody else that I won't I won't even talk about. Fair enough. We don't need to go there. <laughs> and um, I think that that was part of it. And people just liked that studio. You know, they they liked the vibe of it, and they didn't they just didn't want to change. They didn't know what this new studio is going to be, and whatever. You know, who I don't know. You know, I, to be honest, I don't really know. I'm just guessing. <laughs> And so don't anybody quote me, please. <laughs> okay, fair enough. No quoting. So then when Power Station was built and you're underway well into that, did any of those old clients end up eventually following you or was it basically all new? New clients, new path, new life, basically. It was pretty much new because um, when we designed it, I said to Tony, I mean, Tony was the main designer, of course, it was his studio. I said, look, could we make it a rock studio? We had been doing nothing but R&B records pretty much at media. And Tony was a king of that, of the R&B, of disco music, you know. And I said, could we do rock music? And he said, look, we could make it any kind of studio you want as long as people come. I don't care who it is, as long as they come and book it and pay for studio time. <laughs> and uh, I said, great. I kind of pushed the design in, in that direction because I was into Led Zeppelin and people like that and British rock. I grew up listening to that kind of stuff. And so I wanted like a big drum sound and that kind of thing. And so we, we sort of pushed it so we could do that. So we could do both, actually. I mean, it was such a versatile studio because you could do really tight R&B records. So our first client was Cheek and Sister Sledge and records like that. So there were, there were R&B records. And so it could do that, but it could also do... Springsteen and Ian Hunter from Mont the Hoople, which were more of a rock thing. We did some a bunch of punk bands. We did a, a punk band called Tough Darts, which was a favorite of mine from CBGB days. There was another Scottish band called the Rosillos, which we Tony and I produced. And another guy named Lance Quinn produced those two bands. And there was another band called Johnny's Dance Band. It was a rock band from Philadelphia. So yeah, it was all it was all pretty much new. There weren't a lot of people that actually came from Media Sound. You know, later, the Stones and Springsteen and, you know, then went out from there, Brian Adams. When you say you wanted to make it more of a rock studio, what was different? Was it like a bigger drum room? But what were like some of the specific things that you did in order to make it more palatable, I guess, to rock bands? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, having a big, more of an ambient type room Mainly, you know, I always had Led Zeppelin. I always had uh, one levy breaks in my head. You know, geez, if I could just get something like that, that sounds like a rock record to me, you know, back then. And it still does, I think. Oh, yeah, totally. So, you know, I said, Tony, let's, can, can we have the, the main room of Studio A? Can it be somewhat ambient? And he said, yeah, yeah, okay, absolutely. And what was so great is that it had that big ambient room and then it had a a semi-ambient room that we called the keyboard rooms, like the piano's usually in there. And then the R&B room, which was a, a real dead room. And, and they all had these um, sliding glass mall doors so you could separate them all off or make it all one big room. In the R&B room, we actually had a plywood floor so we could nail the drums down to the floor. If, you know, sometimes when a drummer's really hitting the kick drum hard and it starts to move, well, we solved that problem by big nails. <laughs> I mean, whatever works, right? Yeah, you know, and then it had another 
another ISO booth next to the control room. So it had all these different areas. So we could record a big live rock band and get really good isolation at the same time and an ambient sound, which even, even other rock studios like Record Plant, you couldn't do that. And Record Plant was like a recording in a closet. It was just completely dead, which is why Bruce you know, Springsteen worked at Record Plant. And then he came over to Power Station for the river and he went, wow, this is amazing. You know, we got a drum sound in 20 minutes that would have taken us two weeks to get at Record Plant, and we still wouldn't have gotten this. <laughs> you know? Just because the room and the environment was that good. Yeah. Yeah, it was dead easy to, to get, get any kind of sound you wanted. You weren't fighting the room, and you had different choices of different types of rooms. So, you know, take your pick. I think a lot of people don't or let's just say they underestimate the power of the room when it comes to drums. Yeah, no, no, I, I, th I think so. You know, I mean, sometimes you do want a, a really dead, tight sound. You know, you don't always want that big ambient sound, but it's nice to have the choice. Yeah, absolutely. How did the word start to get out to where you could attract someone like Springsteen? It's not a small thing. Well, that's an interesting story because um, I was really interested in this band called the Tough Darts. It was a punk band. And so we got, got to produce them. Sire Records signed them. And they were interested in having Tony produce bands for Sire. And Tony knew that I really liked these guys. And he said, here, co-produce them with me. So we, we produced that album. But they were friends with a guy named Ian Hunter, who had an English rock band called Mata Hoople before that, the very early 70s, late. Yeah, well, early 70s. So... Ian came over and helped them out on a couple of songs, did some overdubs, and loved the studio, just fell in love with it. Back then, it was only Studio A. We didn't have any other rooms yet. The rest of it was, the building was kind of vacant. And he just loved it, and he liked, I think he liked working with me. And so he went to do his solo album, which was called You're Never Alone with the Schizophrenic. And he hired some of the E Street Band members. I like that name. <laughs> yeah, as his backup band. He had Danny Federici playing organ. Ian played piano, so he didn't need Roy. And then Gary Talent playing bass and Max Weinberg on drums. And so they just flipped when they came in and said, we got drum sounds, literally 20 minutes. They just loved it. So they, Bruce is about to start the river after that. And so they went to back to Bruce and they said, you, you know, just check the studio out. It's really good. I think you'll like it. So Bruce came over and we did the first couple songs in the river. And that was that. You know, he stayed at Power Station and did the whole album there. Was he already huge at this point? He was pretty big. This is after Born to Run and all that and after uh, the Darkness album. Yeah, this is the next album after the Darkness album. So yeah, he was pretty. He was pretty big. Everybody knew who he was. You know what's so interesting about that is doesn't change ever. I think that this is universally true across eras. I really, really believe that producers and studios, mixers, they they get gigs through word of mouth always. Like it's always because someone had a good experience and they knew somebody else who then talked about it to somebody else, and before you know it, somebody important is through the door, but it's amazing to me how that, to this day, hasn't changed, that method of getting work. I think you're so right. I mean, it happened to me so so many times, like, because our first client at Power Station was, was Chic, obviously an R&B disco band, and we got along great, and we made some huge records, and they were on Atlantic Records, and the Rolling Stones were on Atlantic Records, and they, they were had just 
recorded a song called Miss You, and they wanted a like a dance mix. They thought, oh, well, you know, everything's into dance clubs and disco now, and we could probably do a, maybe somebody could do a dance mix of this, an extended 12-inch dance mix. So they asked someone at Atlantic, and they said, well, you know, this guy Clear Mountain has been doing some pretty great things with with Chic. That's his thing, R&B, which, of course, my thing is really rock. <laughs> so ironic. And so they let me do a, a dance mix, and then they loved Mick loved that, and he had me do the single mix as well. And so, yeah, that this is the same thing. It's just you get to, you do one thing, and then somebody finds out about it, and oh, well, you should try this guy. Yeah, another interesting thing here is that you were recommended for doing the dance stuff, but really, you're a rock guy. I think that getting at least in the early days, I think that getting to work on genres or with artists that you actually are really into is a luxury. I think, I feel like that's like something that happens, like you graduate to that point almost. I I think that if people get too choosy early on in their career, they're seriously going to hamper their efforts because I don't know, I, I feel like you should take the opportunity where it comes, make the best of it. And then hopefully that leads into what you were actually going after, like yourself and rock and getting paid. (laughs) <laughs> and getting paid, yeah. Because I'm, st- I still do that. I mean, I do records that. I mean, if it's something I hate, I won't do it. Like if it's something, if I hear something, I go, oh, geez, man, these lyrics are <laughs> really, you know, revolting. I, I just won't. There's a lot of records that I would never think to buy. I do a whole lot of stuff, a lot of French records that are all French speaking. I've done some Spanish things too. And um, you know, I'm I'm pretty big in France, to be honest. <laughs> and and uh, you know, I would never think to buy one of those records. Johnny, I did like eight Johnny Halliday records, I think. And uh, I loved the guy. Well, until he passed away, unfortunately. But uh, you know, I loved working with him. I loved everybody involved. The A and R guy for most of those projects and for most of this French stuff, a guy named Bertrand Lamlo, is one of the best A and R guys I've ever worked with. I mean, he's just brilliant. He's just really a good guy. He's become one of my best friends. But it isn't music I would ever choose to listen to. I don't speak French. <laughs> would you have even thought of that as being like a part of your career, French music? No, I never would have thought of it. But these guys called me up and they said, look, we, we think you could do a good job with, with our music. You know, Johnny in particular, I think he was friends with Brian Adams. And so that's probably how that happened. And he's just a, he was just a big rock fan. And so he was a fan of a lot of the records that I've done, like the Stones and Springsteen and whatever. But no, and, and, but I just really enjoyed making those records and mixing them. They were incredibly well produced and great musicians. I mean, they, they don't just use French, and the French musicians are amazing, but some English guys, some American people, you know. And so, yeah, it's crazy to sit there and wait for something that you like. <laughs> Just... Man, you you never know where the opportunity is going to come from. I'm blanking on this dude's name, a uh, producer that I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. But anyways, point being, this guy is a total hardcore metal dude. That's all he listens to. That's what he looks like, covered in tattoos, like just metal and hardcore to the bone. But he's got like four Latin Grammys for like Latin dance music. Really? Uh, he does not <laughs> listen to that stuff at all. Right. But for some reason, there's something in his brain wiring that makes him very, very good at that 
kind of music. And if he had just said, I only want to do metal and hardcore, I don't think he'd have Grammys right now because honestly, his metal mixing's kind of kind of crappy. But <laughs> his uh, his Latin dance stuff's you know? incredible. Yeah, yeah. Well, th there you go. You know, I mean, I I have a Grammy for uh, Ricky Martin. I mean, Ricky Martin. That's <laughs> far from anything <laughs> far I would from ever rock. You know, <laughs> but the producer has become one of my best friends, Tommy Torres, who produced it, and also. It was part of the video and one of the musicians. I do a lot of records for him. He's, he's from Puerto Rico, part of the, the whole Miami Latin music group, you know, and uh, and just is amazing. He's just an amazing musician, amazing engineer, too. I mean, the stuff that he records is incredible and a really good guy. And just I do records for him whenever I can. <laughs> when something like that comes up, like a Ricky Martin who is... Like we're saying, you're a rock dude. That is the furthest thing from it. What kind of mental process do you go through to get into it? Is it like the love of the craft? Because that stuff is always engineered incredibly well, written incredibly well. Is it more you find something to tune into that you can make yourself love about it? Like That's it, exactly. I mean, I'm, I love the process. I really just love mixing. And it almost doesn't matter what it is, you know, it's, as long as it's um, fairly well thought out, and and if it's a good arrangement, I don't know. I just I just like the process because you stop thinking about it. You know, I mean, even uh, working with somebody that I'm a fan of. So once you get over the fact that Mick Jagger just walked into the room, then you're just, he could be any client. He could be anybody that you're working with. And if he's professional and if he knows what he's doing and he doesn't particularly give you a hard time, and you, you kind of get where he's going, he or she, I should say. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter if you don't particularly like the music or understand the music or even understand the language. It just becomes mixing and you just do the best you can. You know, hopefully you get to the point where you know what it should sound like. You know, it's a, there's a lot of talking to the, sussing out the artist or the producer or whoever it is you're working with to try to get into their heads as to what they want. I mean, a lot of these projects, uh, I end up doing things that I, I wouldn't normally do but I understand where the artist or the producer is coming from, and so that I, I kind of focus on that instead of anything that I, I would specifically want to do. What's your process for sussing that out, especially in a case like, say, The Stones, where you know them as a rock band, you love them as a rock band, you're a rock dude, but they're coming to you for something that's kind of out of left field for them. And that's just one example, but how do you figure out that you're on the same page? Well, I kind of like to live in the left field, to be honest. I like it over there. And so, you know, throw throw me something that's that's different, and that's when I get really excited. And so if it's not just, just a regular rock song, or if it's more of an R&B thing, or if it's whatever, if some kind of combination of styles, that just gets me more excited than anything, you know? Because, I mean... It, you can mix the same record over the same type of record and go, okay, I know exactly what to do with this, but that could be maybe just a little bit boring if it's always the same and everything's recorded perfectly well. Sometimes my favorite things are things that are recorded badly because I can do more with it. I can, I can really work on it and turn it around and make it sound like something else, something better. There's a lot more room for transformation that way. Yeah. 
You know, I think you're right. I guess I refer to metal a lot because that's the world I come from. That's what I know. I can't talk about country because I don't come from that world. But one thing that happens with metal productions a lot is that they get very samey. And a lot of dudes will start to burn out because there is a lot of variety in the styles, but there's some elements to it that are just very homogenous. And you kind of do the same thing record after record after record. And I know that that, that tends to wear on people after a while, like 11 months straight of doing bands of the same genre, they start to check out mentally, basically. Yeah, well, I, I could see where, where that could happen. And I'm so lucky because I get to mix in so many different different projects, you know? I mean, I just went from a, a Springsteen. It's funny because there's, you're going to think it's, oh, well, it's the same thing because it's Springsteen and then it's Steve Van Zandt, but they're totally different. I mean, they couldn't really be... They're styles of music couldn't really be more more different when they're on their own when Steve's on his own so that that was really interesting and then god I, I'm, I'm just so lucky I get to do so lots of different styles of, of things you know and it's it really helps it, it keeps it keeps you not bored and I think that that's so key it's interesting though because back to what we were saying earlier you can't really be choosy, especially at the beginning. You've got to go where the opportunity is. But at the same time, I think you need to protect yourself from getting bored. So, Because if you get bored, you're not going to do the work required to get as good as you could or to do right by the artists. So I think it's a fine balance of uh, going with the opportunity, but also trying to place yourself to where the opportunities will be interesting to you. Yeah, would agree with that. <laughs> Okay, so speaking about the left field thing, I understand what you mean by that you like to live out there, but how do you know that your idea of left field is the same as the artist's idea? Well, I have to figure out what what the artist is because the artist's idea of, of the left or whatever field he's in is far more important than than mine. You know, so I, just, I first try to figure out what that is and then try to relate my my idea of what that is to theirs. And but theirs has to be the the dominant field. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the, it's it's their record. I'm I'm providing a service. It's not my thing. It's not my mix. It's their mix, really. How do you figure it out? Is it? I mean, do they give you references, or is it through conversation? Or sometimes they do. Sometimes they'll play something and say, "Oh, this is the kind of thing I'm looking for." Sometimes I'll ask them if I don't know them if it's if it's a new client. What records of mine were you listening to when you decided, oh, I want that guy, right? So that'll give me some idea of what direction to go in, and that that will help quite often. Because usually it's something that I've done that they say, yeah, we like that. We want that kind of thing. Uh, otherwise, it's just tell me something about this music. What do you feel about it? What's important? What's the, the main thing going on here? Bob Rock said something really interesting after the Metallica Black Album, that you know every band wanted that sound for like the next 15 years. Every band that would come in would want that, even though they sounded nothing like Metallica. There's nothing in common with them, but they just wanted the Black Album sound. And I know lots of people that that happens to, usually when a producer or a mixer is kind of responsible for a change, like an evolution of a genre or something something along those lines or is kind of like spearheading a musical movement, there will be lots and lots of artists who then go to them for that sound. But sometimes 
they have nothing in common with what they're going after. So do you ever get it where someone will point out records that you did that couldn't be further away from what they do? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or other other records. So how do you how do you reconcile that? Well, I I don't know. I mean, I just it just made me think of one example. Did you want to hear a little? I'd love to. Well, this one band, this guy comes in and he plays me an ACDC record, you know, which sounds fantastic. You know, it was just it was Back in Black or something like that. And I mean, they're so straightforward rock band, and I just, I just love that music. And okay, I get that. And then I put the faders up on this thing that he wants me to mix. And these guys sounded like they just graduated from jazz school. <laughs> there was not a beat in the bar that wasn't accented. <laughs> you know, like, like, like these fills were just flying around the room and cymbals and, you know, high, all kinds of crazy stuff in a hi-hat. You know, the guitar players just like noodling away like crazy, like a million, million notes. The furthest thing from ACDC. I know. I looked at the guys and... What? <laughs> you know, all I could do is like, look, there's just no possible, there's a snowball's chance of this ever sounding anything even close to ACDC. No matter what I do, you'd have to start over. You know, and, and I would just be honest and tell them that. If that's what you want, that's, you're in the wrong place, man. And that there's nothing I can do to get you there. <laughs> I had another interesting experience that taught me a, a big lesson that's a little different. It's going off off the track a little bit from what you asked, but That's okay. it's it's kind of a similar vibe where I had just finished mixing Avalon for Roxy Music, which is this big, expansive, you know, it's sort of a lush record and and it's, you know, beautiful and wide and and lots of big reverbs and delays and things like that. And um and so I'm mixing a band by the uh, an Australian band called the Divinals. Right, and so I got that in my head because I've just finished mixing that, and I'm making it real sort of big and wide and hi-fi. These people are not happy. I could tell they're just not smiling, <laughs> just not feeling it. While we're mixing, and finally they said, "Listen, uh, we need to talk to you because it's, it's just not really working." You got to understand that we're not big and wide. We're like a little spiky ball. We're like a little, you know, like this really uncomfortable. We're not big. We're very small and and intense. <laughs> and rough and not refined in any sort of way. And uh, I just went back and I listened to, to what I was doing. I was going, oh my God, they're so right. I got this so completely wrong. I had mixed two songs. So I just threw it all out and it just started totally from scratch and totally got into what exactly what they were saying. But the little spiky ball, I thought that was a, a really good illustration of what this band was supposed to sound like. And then we got along great, and then the album came out great, and they loved it, and every, everything was, was really good. But it, they really put me in my place. And, the, you know, at the time, I thought, okay, I'm the big guy. I just mixed these big records. I did Chic and Rolling Stones and Roxy Music, and, and you know, I was really feeling full of myself. And uh, these two kids from Australia put me right in my place. It was great. It was the best thing that could have happened to me. Always serves as a reminder of what you said earlier, that performing a service for the artist, that their vision is the most important thing. That's exactly right. And I try to make their vision my vision, is what thought is there. So what does spiky ball translate into? <laughs> like when you're sitting there mixing, how do you translate the visual of a spiky ball into audio? Well, it's just rough sounding, you know, nasty, not trying to dip out annoying frequencies, like accentuating the annoying frequencies. 
and maybe you don't hear everything all at once. Maybe it turns into a, you know, I'm, I'm always into this thing where, oh, you should hear all the instruments really clearly and separate. Well, maybe they shouldn't be all clear and separate. Maybe they should all be kind of bunched together, just a, like a noise. And, you know, don't make anything... I think you know what I'm saying. You know, if you I do. if yeah. you're into metal music, I'm sure you understand where I'm, where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, the more uh, raw sounding records, kind of like where things step on other things, and you get nastiness in the high end of the guitars and the cymbals, and that that's kind of what came to mind for me. Yeah, harsh sounding. You know, not pleasant sounding. Right. Yes. And Bruce Springsteen's like that too. You know, he'll I, I will mix something that's sounds too good, and he'll go, no, no, it should be rougher, it should be nastier, and and more kind of, you know, the guitar should be harsher, and or he won't even go that, get that specific. He'll just say, he'll just describe it in uh, some sort of a metaphor. That happens a lot with him. Do you find it refreshing when artists have that clear of a vision? Yeah, uh, well, well, I do. And absolutely no I, I I hope they do and I it's better when they don't do it in any, any sort of technical way you know they don't say oh you should add more 5k to the the guitar or something like that you know I'd rather they just that's your job yeah exactly I'd rather they give me an overall yeah like some sort of metaphor or, or what they envision it sounding like you know not not in specific technical terms but yeah you're right yeah that's that's my job let me interpret that into the mix. Does that happen now more than before that you get uh, backseat mixers, basically? Because I think it's pretty much true that in every single band in the world now, somebody has Pro Tools or Cubase or something and makes their own recordings. And so probably think they know something about mixing. Do you find that you get a lot more of that add 5K to the guitars, please, than you used to? No, no, I don't. I very rarely get that. No, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really unusual. Most of the people that I work with are, you know, they're not like that unless I ask them <laughs> specifically. But no, no, usually they're uh, pretty good. They'll just, uh, I mean, Steve Ed Zant will just go, okay, more backing vocals and more horns. <laughs> that's, that's usually his. Easy enough. Yeah. <laughs> and what about when an artist doesn't have a clearly defined vision? Is it then, in your opinion, your job to kind of figure out what it might be or create it for them? I'll try. I'll try to figure it out, and maybe I'll give them a couple different versions. I'll say, "Well, is this is this the kind of thing you're thinking? How does this feel?" Or, and if they go, "Oh, well, that's that's really not it," you know, I'll try something else. I'll just try some different things until uh, they either go, "Yeah, that's it," or they fire me. <laughs> one or one or the other. Yeah, which happens. I mean, at what point do you? realize, I guess, maybe I'm not the right fit for this. Yeah, well, I tell you, there was one person I was working with, who I won't mention who it is, I tried to mix two or three of his songs, and he just kept going back to his rough mixes, because he had done everything in the box. He had mixed, he had done his rough mixes as he was recording, and he go, no, well, listen, listen to what I did in, in, on my rough, you know, uh, if you get it more like that, and then he kept doing it, no matter what I did, no matter what I tried to do to make it better he said well no no i think you know the kind of thing i was doing was uh i think that that's more the direction i want i want to be in and i finally said look you've already mixed this record what what you don't need me you know obviously you're quite happy and i'm just trying to duplicate what you did and why would you pay me to do that when you've already done it <laughs> and so 
So we stopped. That's actually kind of what I meant. Not exactly as like, please give it more 5K, but that scenario I, I have heard about and experience happening a lot because I think sometimes artists will spend way too long on their roughs and their demos and get way too attached and then kind of basically tank any potential it has for going further. That's right. That's what happens. They get really used to hearing it a particular way. And um, that's the weird thing about computers now, recording in a computer where you can do that. You can just keep adding. You're really mixing as you're recording a lot of times, the way people do it. Instead of just treating it as a tape machine, you know, mixing on a console, and every time you bring it up, it's a little bit different. You know, once you're you're kind of locked into the, this kind of mix that you have with a trillion plugins, and um, then somebody comes along and gets rid of all that, like me, that turns all that stuff off and starts from scratch again. I go, oh well, I, that doesn't sound like what what I had, you know. And yeah, okay, well, hopefully this will be better. Yeah, sometimes it's not. I don't know. I think it's better, of course, but sometimes. Demoitis is a it's a serious it's a serious issue. Well, it's always occurred, you know. I mean, people always did lock into their rough mixes, even in the old days, but now it's even even more so. Every time they bring up their session, it's the same exact mix, and then they just keep adding to that. They get really locked into it, and it just, it's hard to avoid it, really. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, how do you get around that? I guess there's still some producers who like it to sound as close to done as possible, just faders up with nothing on. But I think that that is uh, becoming increasingly more rare with as many musicians that can record themselves now. Yeah. I come across a whole lot of musicians that the first thing they'll say, look, man, I tried to mix this, but I, I can't get it to sound like anything. And no matter what, so they're so happy to hand it over to, to somebody who who can give them a, like a, a fresh perspective on the whole thing. And that's how I would be. I mean, I used to play in a band and put out records and all that stuff. Even though I could mix, I always took the budgets and used them to get somebody that I thought was better than me because why not? Yeah. I, I always felt like there was somewhere that I couldn't reach on my own stuff. And when somebody else would mix it, I felt like it was doing the music justice. To me, it was always a relief. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Because it's hard to see the forest for the trees when you're listening Absolutely. to... You know, you know every single note that's on your recording. You know, you want somebody to go through and go, no, this, this is no good. No, turn this one up and turn that one down. You know? Yeah, and you get, you get emotionally attached to things that kind of don't matter. That's exactly right. It happens a lot. How do you, how do you deal with that? when you have an artist that's very, very into ideas that don't really, really propel the mix forward, but are very, very strong-headed about it, or actually potentially making the mix worse. I really have to default to what they want. Fair enough. Uh, I mean, I do. I could suggest things. I will suggest, well, what about this? And if they go, no, I don't like that. I like this particular thing up and that thing down. Okay, well, let's make that work. And I just figure out a way to make it work. That's all. You have to think like they do, basically, is what I kind of said before. But I got to be a, a chameleon and um, turn what I want into what they want, not the other way around. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration 
and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. It's something that you said earlier that I meant to inquire more about, but uh, you're talking about Jagger coming in the room, and then once you get over the fact that it's Mick Jagger, then it's just another client. You're just doing work, almost like in the military when they say that when combat starts the training just takes over you're not thinking about it anymore you just you're doing that thing that you do i do think that it takes a certain type of person to not get freaked out by i guess a star or someone that they really really respect mostly because they they don't want to fuck up in front of them did you have those kinds of fears when these superstars started coming in well you know at first you do it's hard to not, you know. I mean, I've worked with Paul McCarty, who, who, when I was a kid, I used to have dreams about meeting yeah. Lennon and McCarty. You know, I they changed my life. I mean, this guy, this guy is responsible to literally changing my life and my haircut. <laughs> and um, here I am sitting in the same room with him, talking to him. He's my client, and you, yeah, at first you kind of like, holy crap, you know, is this actually happening. Yeah, right. And then, but then you start talking about the music, and you start, you know, discussing what what he wants and what he wants to do, what he wants me to do. And then he he gets to be like he could be anybody, really. You just forget about that. It's 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 a client, and he's every bit as important as every other client who is every bit as important as him. You know what I mean? Once that wears off, you're just doing the job. You're just doing the job. Yeah. Yeah, and it does. It wears off. It wears off really quickly, I find. I think that's probably part of what sets you apart. I think it wouldn't wear off that quickly for a lot of people. Understandably so. People like Paul McCartney are uh, titans. Yeah. What was it like working with him? I have to ask because he changed my life too. (laughs) Okay. I used to have dreams about those guys as well. 
Right. He was really nice. I mean, he was incredibly nice to me. The thing was, it was a live album. And so he wasn't, to be honest, he wasn't all that involved. He would just come over like once a week, basically, just to listen to what I was doing. And it, it was just always nice. You know, he'd come over and bring some of his friends and we'd listen to, to stuff. And, uh, and he was very appreciative of what I was doing. He was more concerned with, you know, he would tell jokes between songs on the live shows. But there were like 80 live shows that we picked from that he, his engineer actually whittled it down to four or five performances of each songs of which I would go through and pick what I thought was the best. But between each, each song during the show, he would kind of tell a little joke. And I remember there was one time there was one joke that I didn't realize was a joke because <laughs> the audience didn't react. And he said, I thought he was just off the cuff that said something. And so I, took it out of the running order, and he went and listened. He goes, well, what happened to my joke? <laughs> I told a joke there. I said, you did? <laughs> oh, oh, right, the joke. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I go, okay, I'll put that back. <laughs> and it was the same joke every time, turns out. You know, I finally realized, going back and listening to it several different takes, oh, we, I see, he told the same thing, right, that nobody reacted to. <laughs> okay, well, I'll put it back in. <laughs> And so that, that, I thought that was funny, you know, that was an interesting thing. It is. I don't think he does that anymore, to be honest, because I've seen him, back then, the shows were pretty regimented, and he didn't seem to, he wasn't very loose, like he had a certain thing that he always said. But I went to see him recently, just his last tour, when he played here in L.A., and he's gotten way better, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, it was very loose, and it just very, kind of really related to the audience, and it was really funny. He doesn't stop. Yeah, no, he doesn't stop. He's he's just incredible. I mean, he really is. You know, it's just a brilliant artist, I think. Like one of the best bass players to ever to walk the face of the earth as far as <laughs> um, you know, I would put his drummer at the time, the tour that I did, his drummer was he was okay, he wasn't great. He'd be singing and you'd solo his bass and the bass drum, and it was like the same guy was playing the bass drum and the bass. It was like Absolutely locked. It was it's just amazing. And he would play all those melodies and things on his bass that like uh, forget it. Yeah, that that's the thing that gets me about his bass playing is the way that he weaves melody in without it making without making it sound noodly or out of place. Right, exactly. Because sometimes bass players they'll just ruin things when they start yeah. doing that, but it always works when he does it. Always works. And sometimes it's the it's like the main melody in some songs that you remember. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If you had to analyze this, is there anything that you find that's like common between all these mega star musicians, like some trait that they all tend to share that you notice maybe other people don't have? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. What, like a personality trait, you mean? Yeah, maybe like a level of focus or... Well, that, yeah, there's that. Once you get to a certain point, it's a level of professionality. I don't really like that word very much, but what I'm getting at is that they basically know what they want, but they are open to ideas as well. So instead of just dictating everything, you know, like this is how it's got to be. Okay, this is this is what I want. What's your idea? You know what I mean? And they'll they'll let me or they'll let others suggest things and try to augment what the production or whatever it is. 
but they're still very clear about, the, okay, well, I like that idea, let's use that, but look, over here, this is what I want to do, and this is what we're going to do. So they'll be very firm about certain things, but still open. Open to making it be as good as it could be. Yeah, you know, and, I, and everything, everyone I work with, you know, Bruce and Jagger and McCarty or whoever, whoever it is, Brian Adams, Brian Ferry, you know, all, the, all these guys, Chrissy Hine, let's say, I don't know, I could go on. <laughs> Well, from the 80s, of course, because I'm, I'm old. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think the, they're, they're all like that. They're, they're professional and open to ideas, but know what they want. Makes sense. So earlier you were talking about uh, in the box versus out of the box. I feel like we should cover that a little bit because uh, you're known as an analog guy. I mean, you had the plug-in that came out. You do use Pro Tools. Where... In your mind, what role does the digital stuff play now in your workflow and in the big picture? Well, in my workflow, it's a combination of digital and analog. I mean, the plugin, the Clear Mountains Domain plugin, is really a reflection of what I do mostly you know, on the SSL using digital effects. The thing was that I realized to try to do a mix in the box using that signal flow that I use, which is a combination of di- reverbs, a bunch of different reverbs, delays, harmonizers, distortion, EQs. So try to do all that in the box, it's very difficult. It's very easy to do the way I do it in the analog world. So we thought, maybe, well, maybe we could create a plugin that where it makes it much easier if you're actually mixing something in the box to, to do all that stuff. My, my former assistant, Sergio Ruelas, mixes in the box and mixes in Logic and Pro Tools. And he said to me, you know, I've tried to duplicate what you do and it was really hard because I really like the kind of effects you come up with and uh, I just can't do it. Or I, I can, but it's it's just too difficult and too hard to do. And so that's that's why we did the plugin. Some of the praise that I've heard from it from a lot of producers is that it's... Uh described as uh, refreshingly simple for the high level of quality and uh, the complexity of the chains that you can get going. It, uh, it Typically, those plugins that do a lot of different things tend to not always be wonderful. I've noticed typically plugins will do one thing well. Right. And then the more things you start adding, the less good they tend to get sometimes, not always. The thing that I've heard the most about this one is that it kind of does everything well, and it's super simple to use. Oh, great. Well, that's nice to hear. Yeah, which is interesting because you're saying that to normally do that kind of stuff would be complex in the box. What is it about just uh, if you were doing those chains from scratch in the box that would be hard? Would it be like the delay compensation or? Yeah, well, just getting like delays to feed into, say, harmonizers or feed into each other so that you get that ping pong kind of thing and and to be able to control it easily and then then feed those things into various reverbs with different amounts. Just being able to do all that easily. I mean, I don't really mix in the box, so I, I didn't know. You know, I just thought, oh, well, what, why should that be difficult? I mean, it's a computer. You should be able to do that easily. And I went to try to do it, and I, I gave myself a really bad headache, and I went, oh, <laughs> fuck this, man. Uh, the, who wants to go through this? This is like being in hell. You know, I couldn't, 
I said, well, compared to what I do here, and just push some things up on, on some faders and twiddle some knobs there. And, oh, there you go. It's simple. What do you mean? I worked really hard on, I kept adding stuff and taking stuff out. And, you know, this has to feed here. And this button's got to be really obvious what this button does. It's got to be really obvious what this little fader is for. And it had to be easy to, to get lots of different sounds. The presets, everybody talks about the presets, but the, I didn't really spend enough as much time on the presets as I should have. They should have been a little more extensive. And hopefully the next version, I'll spend more time on the presets. My main thought, because I don't really use presets normally of anything that I use, is I very rarely use a preset in an eventide box, let's say. I'll just go in and fiddle around with it till I get this thing that I want. I wanted people to have something that they could be creative with. So I gave them presets so they had something to start with. My advice is, okay, start with a preset, but go in there and fool around with it and change it and turn it into your own thing. You know, be creative with it. It should be a creative tool. It shouldn't be something that you just slap on. No, 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 my mix sounds better because I stuck this preset on it, on my mix. And don't do that. You know, start with that and then mess with it and come up with your own thing. Yeah, I think that that's one of the downfalls of modern mixing is the tendency to go towards presets. But I think if people do it the way you said, where it's just a starting point, it can actually be a really useful thing. Mixing's fun. It should be fun. It shouldn't be torture. Here's a tool that, now you can have some fun with it. You can come up with really bizarre sounds, some things that probably won't work. But you 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 keep playing with it and you'll find something, oh, well, this, this is actually adding a nice... A nice thing to this mix. Uh, I'm trying to put some creativity back in the mixing, basically, for for just the normal person. Speaking of starting from scratch, is there anything in your rig that is basically the same every time, like maybe certain routings to certain outboard, or are you literally going from zero, total zero, every time? Well, when I start a, a mix, a new a new mix, I normal out the desk first off. So there's really nothing. Some routing things. I have some some sends for vocal effects that I always have there, but they're not sending to anything until I start the mix. Some things like that that stay the same. My returns are pretty much coming back in the same place. But um, the only things that I usually start with, I usually do a parallel thing on the snare drum. If it's if it's their live drums, one side's going through this. It's actually a broken uh, FET Poltec that I have here. EQP1A. Broken in a good way? Well, yeah, I didn't know it was broken until they Apogee tried to model it, and they said, ooh, there's something wrong with the, the One of the op amps is um, defective in here. It's just broken. But it has a kind of a sound to it, and so <laughs> I use it on snare drum. I like it. It's a little distortion, I guess. An 1178, half of an 1178, and, and then into the that thing on one channel, and then the other channel's just without that, and then I just EQ them. I'll actually use more EQ on the one that's not going through the Pultec and uh, like a parallel compression kind of thing. So that's one thing that I kind of do a lot. Sometimes I just turn that off, though, if it doesn't work. I generally stick the piano through... um, I have this Logic FX SSL compressor, which is just like the compressor in the console. Not always, but quite often the piano's going through that and a couple of Pultec EQP 1A3s. And then the vocals are usually either going through an, an LA-3A or a, 
1178. Acoustic guitars like tend to put them through distressors because they seems like the best versatile compressor that it really is. It's just amazing how you can because it's hard to compress a acoustic guitar, especially if it's got some bottom end to it, because they, they tend to fight compressors tend to fight them. It seems like this is the only one I found that where you can mess with the attack and release and really tune into a specific type of sounding acoustic guitar where it, it actually makes it sound better without it sounding like it's fighting. You don't hear that sort of bouncing thing, you know. But like I say, I don't do anything always. There's always situations where I won't do that. I'll, I'll listen to it, I go, ooh, that's not really working, and I'll just turn it off. So those are just some sometimes go-tos, but no rules, really. Yeah, the bass I usually have going through a, a Neve 33609, and a, see, I have this um, Avalon AD2055, which I just add a little bit of, like, 72 cycles, just a tiny little bit. It does a thing, adds some nice little bottom end to it. Um, those are a couple things. That's about it. Do you have ideas for more plugins coming down the line? Oh, yeah. So it's becoming a thing. Yeah, there's some, some other things I want to do. Some specific kind of patches that I do, though. I'll just combine them and turn it into like a one plugin. We haven't really done it yet, so I'm not going to talk about it too much. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. We have this thing called Clear Mountain Spaces coming out, which is really just three of the reverbs, and it's got a de-esser, so you can de-ess the input. And uh, there, it's really, it's going to be real cheap, and I think it's going to be bundled with some other Apogee, Apogee stuff. I mean, they're all, all the reverbs are impulse responses that we captured ourselves. I mean, one of them is my live chambers here at my studio. Um, one of them is the Apogee Studio, and then the other one is a is a echo chamber that belongs to a friend of ours who is gracious enough to let us sample it or get an impulse response. So when you're coming up with a plug-in idea, is it kind of like you have a feature list? Like, I want it to be able to do this, this, and this, and then you'll work with the developer to make it happen? Or will you model something and then try to get that to work in the context of a plug-in? Like, where does the idea start for you? A lot of these things I don't I actually don't think of. It's other people. Like my assistant might say, you know, that's a pretty cool little thing that, that you're doing with the snare drum or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, that could actually be a plug-in just on its own. I have some old pieces of gear here that I don't think anybody's modeled yet, which I'm not talking about because I, I don't want anybody to, to do <laughs> it before I do. And um, some things like that, maybe some settings on some a reverb unit that I can try to model. I don't, I don't know. You know, we, we're, we're really just just starting Apogee's. Um, you know, obviously, it's all, it's all through Apogee's. My, it's my wife's company. Huge Apogee fan, by the way. Oh, oh great. Thank you. I'm, using, I'm talking in an Apogee mic, an Apogee hype mic right now, actually. Well, I don't own any Apogee's mics, but I've got a symphony, right. a duet, quartet, and a one. Wow, nice. Yeah. Whole range there. Pretty much. I wasn't kidding when I said I was a fan. So it sounds like it's basically ideas that are kind of unique to your style that nobody else would really think of or pieces of gear that probably not many people own or really tweak the way that you do put into plug-in form, basically. Yeah, and we'll see. You know, I mean, I mean, so far I've only done that, the domain thing and um, we haven't done these other things. I mean, obviously Apogee's modeled my, my Pultec EQP-183s, which you can get now. I mean, they call it the 1A, 
because people like the the look of the one A. They're, they're identical. The one A three and the one A electronically are the same, but they actually used my Poltex. It was funny because while they were doing that, I would come in and I go, "Hey, what happened? What happened to that Poltex? It used to be in my rack." And sure enough, it was over at Apogee. They were <laughs> they were modeling it, and so I had to go without some Poltex for a month or so. Couple months actually. They took them a long time. I mean, man, it takes a while to make plugins. There's so much to it, and, and Apogee's—they're fanatics, so it had to be exactly perfect. Plus the fact that the guy that builds Poltex now, a guy named Steve Jackson at Pulse Techniques, we did it with him, and it, they had to be—he had to approve of it because uh, see, Apogee's the only one that can actually use the name Poltex on a plugin legally, although other companies do it. And Apogee's the only authorized. Poltec plugins. So he's got to prove it. You've got to be happy with it. And Apogee's got to be happy with it. That's right. Yeah. And we're all fanatics. Yeah. That's quite the panel. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, it's really got to be top notch. And they are. Well, I'm looking forward to checking out whatever comes out down the line. I don't want to take up too much more of your day. I do have a few questions from listeners. Do you mind if I ask you a couple of them? Yeah. Go ahead. People were very stoked that you were coming on. Oh, nice. Thank you, people. Here's one from Ted Swan. Do you continue to use the drum samples that you made and released almost 30 years ago? I sure do. They're awesome, especially the basketball. Thank you. <laughs> really? The basketball? Great. Occasionally. Yeah, I do. Once in a while. I mean, to be honest, I try to avoid snare samples because I, unless I really have to, unless there's something, a real problem with the snare drum, I will not do that. I'll just try to compress it or EQ it or do things to it. Bass drum, sometimes I use a couple of those bass drums. I have a bunch of other samples that I use too that I've, I've created myself, sort of my own private collection. Yeah, so, I mean, once in a while I do. There's, there's some pretty good things in there. The cymbals I use quite often when we have to add cymbals to something, things like that, tambourine, some of the percussion. So even 30 years later, they're still relevant to your workflow at times. At times, yeah. I mean, not not real often, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll use those before I'll use anybody else's for sure. <laughs> Fair enough. Here's one from Alex Estrada. He actually has two. Number one is, what was it like working on Let's Dance by David Bowie? Oh, man, that was so much fun. I can't even tell you. You know, first of all, Nile Rogers, just working with Nile was always, always fun because he's one of the funniest people I've ever met, I've ever worked with, and just a great guy. And an incredible producer. Bowie was just probably the best singer I've ever worked with. Don't tell uh, Mick or Paul. Don't tell any of the other singers. Or Brian Adams or Brian Ferry or Daryl Hall. Don't tell any of them I said that. (laughs) (laughs) He was remarkable. I mean, he was just, I mean, he definitely like the man who fell to earth. Like, where did this guy come from? Oh, he was a phenom. Yeah, he was really an amazing talent. I mean, I can't say enough about the respect I have for that man. And the thing is, the whole record <laughs> took three weeks to record and mix, which is pretty amazing. Th- that is fast. Yeah, well, you know, he had booked three weeks, not even weekends, just weekdays. I went at Power Station, I looked in the book, I said, three weeks to do a whole record? And so I put two more weeks on hold, which we never used. It was, we finished it in, in three weeks. It was unbelievable. First takes, that guy... Just first take for everything. You know, it was great. You think that it's just because of the level of ability and vision that it was possible to get done that quickly? 
Yeah, well, between to- those two guys and the musicians were just top notch as well. And so, um, you know, you had Omar Hakim and Tony Thompson and Carmine Rojas on bass. And I mean, these guys are just n- unbelievable. And uh, I'm probably leaving people out, which uh, <laughs> I feel bad about. It. I don't don't mean to. They know you love them. But uh, yeah, they were all all brilliant and. The arrangements were just so good. Niall's such an incredible arranger. The songs were great, obviously. And not only that, but when it came to the mix, they pretty much let me do whatever I wanted, (laughs) which was nice. So it was really fun to mix that record really quick. Speaking of arrangements, do you think that a great mix is dependent on a great arrangement? Oh, yeah, I absolutely do. I've tried to mix records that were poorly arranged, and I've been very frustrated the arrangement isn't halfway decent. I mean, there's certain things you can do. If something's over-arranged, you can take things out. But if it's just badly arranged, you know, if things are conflicting with each other, if there's, like, newly the too many... Sometimes there's the too many melody things. Like, you'll have a guitar doing one thing and a keyboard doing something, and then, then you have a vocal melody on top, trying to be on top of all that, and it just it just won't work. Sometimes it can work, but it's... Hard to make that kind of thing work where you have too many things going on. And so, um, yeah, <laughs> in a nutshell, you're, you're right. <laughs> Something I've noticed that I think is interesting, like when you take a mixer who consistently does incredible work that uh, people are fans of and then something will come out that they do and it's just not on par with everything else that they did. People will be like, did they lose it? Typically what I've noticed is I'll listen and... I'll notice the arrangement is fucked up and it's probably a miracle that they got it to sound as good as they did in the first place. Yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. That can happen. You never know what the mixer has been given to work with. That's right. Alex Estrada's second question is, uh, what tasks from the past have you been happy to wave goodbye to with the developments in technology over the years? I think editing multi-track tape with a razor blade. I'm glad that I don't have to do that anymore. It was really hard to do. In fact, I enjoyed doing it when we had to do it, but it was destructive. And so if you didn't like the way it came out, you had to put pieces back. You were dependent on this little piece of splicing tape to sometimes it would come apart. I remember with Brian Adams, we'd have drum fills on pieces of two-inch tape stuck up on the walls, right? And with some kind of little description written in, in white china marker on the thing. And then I'd have to assemble all that. You know, and Brian Adams would do this thing, which I really loved, where he'd have an idea for some sort of edit, and, and I'd spend two hours editing this thing together, a multi-track, and I'd be like two minutes away from playing it, and he'd go, no, no, I got a better idea. You know, let's just put all that back the way we had it. And then uh, I, I guess I got a completely different idea, and i go, oh. Right, yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> so I'm glad that that went away. Just out of curiosity, when back in those days when you would have the fills stuck on the walls, were you thinking, hopefully one day there's a better method or doing this? Oh, yeah. Because sometimes when you're living in an era, none of us are psychic. We don't know what's coming next, right? So we just accept things for what they are, the technology for what it is. So, But even then, you were thinking, man, I hope this improves yeah, I did. Not not only that, but just the analog tape. I mean, there's going to be a lot of people that violently disagree with me, but analog tape, I mean, I remember times when I'd be, especially with Sheik and some of these other 
you know, Brian Adams, people like that, where I'd be the only one in the control room and the band, the whole band would be out in the studio recording the basic track. And I'm sitting there in the control room thinking, man, this sounds fantastic. This is the best thing I've ever heard. And then we'd play it back and it still sounded pretty good, but it was kind of like... Not as good. <laughs> not quite as good, not quite as present and the, and a little bit, just ever so slightly kind of behind the speakers as when they were playing it and I was listening directly through the desk, it was in front of the speakers. And I always thought, geez, it's a shame that, that there isn't a way to record something that sounds like that, that when I play it back, it sounds like what I heard when they were playing it because it was always a bit distant. And then digital came along. At first, digital sounded kind of harsh, but it was kind of better in some ways but it was a little bit gritty sounding. And then Apogee came along and figured out why that was happening and f fixed that problem. It's just, I just think digital just sounds better. And I think analog tape, as much as there's been incredibly great piano music rec recorded on analog tape, I think it's compared to digital, it's the worst thing, analog's the worst thing you can do to a great piano sound. I think that a lot of people don't realize that with analog, a lot of the greatness was despite the analog tape, not because of the analog tape. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people go, oh, I like that warm bottom. Well, you know what that warm bottom was? It was the leakage between the tracks. Mm -hmm. So, because there was all this bottom end that would migrate between the tracks. So, you didn't have a bass next to a tambourine. Well, all that bottom is really coming from the tambourine track. And it built up over like a 24 track tape or a you know, it wasn't as bad as on 16-track, actually, because you didn't get as much of that. But on 24-track, you would get this sort of bottom end buildup, and it would make the, the bottom end muddy, which a lot of people like. I didn't like it, because to me, I could never get a clear enough bass sound until I started to record digitally. And being a bass player was important. Sounds to me like you want the low end that's there to be the low end that you want to be there, not a low end that's there by accident. Well, I don't want the recording medium making decisions about what it's going to sound like. I want to be the one making those decisions. Makes perfect sense to me. Okay, this one's from Pedro Zamayo Garcia. Hello, Bob. First of all, let me tell you, thank you for all that you've given to music through the years. Your work is really inspiring and unique. Well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> In Excess's kick redefined the spirit and feel of the band. Was that something that came out during the mixing process or was it built into the production delivered to you? In any case, what was the main goal that you and the band had established for that record? What was your vision? And did you feel that the album was going to be so relevant to music history? Uh, well, first of all, I'd love to take all the credit for that record, but I can't. <laughs> I mean, it was produced by a brilliant guy named Chris Thomas who did a brilliant job of it. And they were an incredible band. I was lucky enough to be the guy that mixed it, to be honest. I think it would have been a great record no matter who mixed it. But I think I might have helped a little bit, at least, to realize the band's vision and Chris's vision and to sort of take it up a notch. At least I'd like, I'd like to think that. But that, that was just a great record. I mean, that was the peak of that band. Michael Hutchins was just an amazing singer. And a really smart guy, too. They were all brilliant people. Just great musicians and just a fun band to watch, too, if you ever went to see them. They were just really good performers. It all came together for them on, on that record. And you know, I was glad to be part of it. Sounds like one of those scenarios where everybody involved in the project is just 
in the right frame of mind at the right level of development of their skills with the right compatibility with everybody else that they're working with that allows magic to happen, basically. Yeah, I think so. I was a big fan of Chris Thomas because he made, you know, he worked with the Sex Pistols and the Pretenders and he had made some amazing records. I mean, he was just a brilliant producer. It was so much fun for me to, to work with him. And I was a big fan of In Excess before that. And so the whole thing was just a fun thing for me to do. What level of involvement would you have with a producer back in those days or even now? Like When you have basically a genius producer with a genius band and a very important record, Like, is this something where you're interfacing with the producer a lot or are you left to your own devices? Like, or is there no real set way that it goes down? There's no set way, I don't think. It's always different. Of course, Chris Thomas and I were lovers. I mean, no, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Just a joke. (laughs) But no, I mean, you know, sometimes you have stronger relationships from with some artists and producers, and sometimes not. And sometimes I've some artists I never even meet. There's a lot of the French artists that I've never actually met. I've just mixed their records. That happens quite often. It's nice when artists actually come here. Doesn't happen as much anymore. Everything, mostly everything's online. So you actually like attended mixes? Oh yeah, I do. Yeah, because I, I like to get the more feedback I can get from the the artists, the, the better I feel about what I'm doing. It steers me in a certain direction, which I like that. With Springsteen, he's in New Jersey, and I'm in California, and we do it all online. But we do it on FaceTime, and I stream to him live, and so it's almost like he's just sitting next to me, which is great. And I've I've known obviously known Bruce since the late seventies, and so we have a pretty good relationship. From Russ Mueller says this question is about DSing. Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to share your knowledge with us and for your many contributions to music and the art of mixing. I wanted to know your philosophy behind DSing. I've read interviews where you talk about duplicating the vocal to a second channel on the SSL in order to process it and feed it to the dynamic side chain on the main vocal. That seems straightforward enough, but I noticed that on your domain plugin, you've got DSers in all kinds of places in the effects chains. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of your approach and how you apply DSing these days? All right, well, uh, as far as in the plugin, something happened years ago. I was working on a Brian Adams record. He always liked to hear a, it was either a quarter note triplet or a dotted eighth or something like that on his voice. He kind of liked that, and I liked it too. It worked really well on his particular voice. And then this one song we were doing, we noticed, he noticed actually, that he was hearing the S's come back because it was a rock song. And you didn't really hear the delay that much. It just blended in. But that that S, whatever he, he was sibilant, whatever it was a sibilant phrase or word, you'd hear that come back in the delay. And it was annoying because it was kind of not really in time. And it, it was kind of distracting, really. And I said, oh, geez. Well, I know how to fix that. I'll just stick a de-esser on the center of the delay and fix it. So I thought, well, this, this is really good for long delays. I'm just going to do that from now on. And so it just became part of my, my chain there for my, my delay sends. And I thought, well, when I did this plugin, well, let me just add the de-esser so that you can do it or not. You know, you can turn it on or off. You don't need to use it. If it's for a guitar solo, you wouldn't need a de-esser, obviously. It uh, gives you a little more space in your mix if you're using delays, if you're using long delays. 
the delay should be subtle. It shouldn't really be something that jumps way out normally. And that sort of sibilant sound can be an annoying part of it. Absolutely. Jack Hartley says, Bob, your snares are gargantuan. Could you explain what the process of triggering samples and reinforcing drums was like before digital audio made it so simple? And did you encounter resistance to it from artists? It's funny because early on, Reckless album, I guess, for Brian Adams, it was a certain sound we wanted to get for snare drum. You know, we were into the snare drum back. That was the big thing in the 80s. And so I remember we drove to White Plains because there was a Sam Ash. I called all these different music stores, and they actually had one of the last Ludwig Black Beauty six and a half inch snare drums in stock. It's a great snare. The two of us drove to White Plains from Manhattan and bought the snare drum and brought it back and used it. And then I used it on almost every record because it was just the perfect sound. So that was one thing. And I would always tune, like in the Let's Dance album, that was one of the frustrations for the Let's Dance album for Bowie, is that normally when you do a take and then you, the, the band will come in and listen and then figure out what they're doing wrong and then go out and do another take. And while they come in and listen, I'd run out and touch up the tuning on the drums because mm-hmm. I always tune the drums. Power Station, I bought all the drums. They're all Ludwig kits. I would tune them and I'd replace the heads. I'm not a drummer. I was just into the drum sounds. I taught myself how to tune them. That was my next question. How did you learn? I just taught myself how to do it. Messed around with it. Oh, well, this works and that doesn't. Just like mixing. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing was that that album, they did, there were mostly first takes. And so I was really frustrated with the drum sounds I was getting. So I ended up over-processing most of the drums on that. It worked out anyway. It sounded pretty good, I think. I was just really into just recording the, the drums properly and getting them tuned right. So that was the main thing. And then later on, we started to have sampling. That kind of helped too. And it sort of got into, I had all kinds of different techniques for doing it back in the old days before digital workstations that were could be a bit tedious, but it worked. I guess the reason he was asking if you encountered a resistance to it is because nowadays, oftentimes, especially in heavy music, you will get bands who come into a recording saying, no samples on the drums. I mixed a Guns N' Roses album, and they got really upset when they found out I was using samples, and they were really pissed off at me. I was like, what, really? (laughs) So the resistance isn't new? No, it's not new at all. In fact, there's a lot less resistance nowadays with people that I work with. In fact, people tell me, oh, why don't you put a sample on that thing? You know, it was funny with that Guns N' Roses record because the drummer, he could hear it, that there were samples. He goes, whoa, nice sample and you got in a snare drum. That's great. That's, that really made it better. And yet, Axl Rose, samples? What do you mean, samples? Not feeling it. You can't put samples on our music. You know? All right, whatever. Sorry, man. <laughs> Axl wins? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it seems to be how how things go. Okay, two more questions. This one is from Nicholas Zalovsky. First off, thanks for mixing three of my favorite records. Out of all your work, what are you most proud of and what was your favorite thing to work on? That's kind of a tough one. Yeah, it's really hard to... I've got so many favorites. Amy Mann's first solo record called Whatever was... One of my favorites because it was so unique sounding and the songs were really good. The Crowd House records, all three of them were really good. I thought I was really happy with those. Avalon for Roxy Music, that was pretty special for me. Of course, Born in the USA, 
was just, it was a great record. And working with Bruce is always fantastic. I, mean, I always learn a lot from working with him. And it sold 20 million. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. Yeah, I can't argue with that. <laughs> what else? The Brian Adams records. I mean, Brian became, he's one of my best friends. I mean, and we worked together before anyone knew who he was. We kind of developed a relationship. And I always enjoyed those records because I was, I felt I was a big part of them, of the sound. You know, he, he kind of let me do what I wanted with the sounds. So the, some of those records, especially the third one I did with him, which was called Into the Fire, was my favorite as far as just the way it came out, just the way it ended up sounding. That must be a really good feeling, being friends with an artist, working with them when they're unknown, and then experiencing them experience true success through the work you did together. It really was, you know. We're still good friends, even though I still think he's an asshole, but we're still good friends in spite of it. I'm sure he thinks the same of me. I was about to say, I know plenty of people I'm friends with who know I'm an asshole, so <laughs> it happens. All right, last question from Cody Blakely. What would you say separates amateur mixes from professional mixes, in your opinion? Ooh, of course, it all depends on what the music is, but I'd have to say things getting in the way of the vocal, of the lyric of the song, or what the song's about. If the vocal's too crowded with other stuff, and you get distracted from what the song is about, that's not a good thing, I think. One of the other things, just a pet peeve of mine, which, and this isn't really, that thing about the vocal, I think it's important for a pop record, something that's based around the vocal or around the song, that the song actually comes through and it's not distracted by the instrumentation. But um, a pet peeve of mine is when you hear a, like a rhythm track that's like bone dry, and then the vocal is in the Grand Canyon. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like the vocal's in this place that's got a ton of reverb and delays on it. Okay, well, what is this picture? Where is this place? Like where the band is like right up front, but the vocal is way in the back in some kind of crazy cave. You know, to me, that, that doesn't work. It just bothers me when I hear a record that sounds like that. But it's, that's just my own opinion. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I just don't like Records that sound like that. So you feel like it has to have like a cohesive kind of sound to it? Some kind of cohesion, yeah. Like the vocals have to somehow relate to the music in an audio way, you know, and they got to be in context with each other. It's got to make sense. Like I won't go in and say, okay, that's a, that's a perfect sound on the guitar, but if it doesn't work in the rest of the mix, then I got to ch change it. Like everything relates to each other in a, in a, in a proper, in a good professional mix. Each sound can't sound good just on their own in solo mode. They got to sound good together. It's got to work somehow together. That makes sense. Yeah, you know, I think what's interesting about your answer is sometimes when people talk about this idea here, they'll give technical things, which I think is kind of weird because the technical details will change from mix to mix, song to song, but what you said really resonates with me because really, ultimately, what matters more than the message of the song and the intent of the song getting through, I don't think anything matters more than that. That's right. Yeah, it's not really a technical thing. It's a conceptual thing and a perceptual thing, the way you perceive a, a piece of music. Well, Bob Clear Mountain, thank you so, so much for taking the time to uh, talk to me and uh, sharing your insight. All right, my pleasure. 
Great questions. And thank you for the other people that wrote in some questions. I appreciate all those as well. They're very, very, like I said, very, very stoked that, uh, that you came on, as was I. Great. Well, this is fun. I agree. Thank you very much. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio, And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit URM.academy and press the podcast link today.